Well, go ahead and be turning in your Bible to Psalm 84. That's where we're going to be today. As way of a, a bit of an introduction for this psalm, let me just give you a short story here about my wife and I. And uh, I did not clear this with her first, so sorry, Amy, when you listen to this later. But it's not too embarrassing one. Uh, when my wife and I, yes, yeah, sorry, when my wife and I were uh, newlyweds, McDonald's started this brand new promotional thing. This shows how old I am, okay? It was any size drink, one dollar. And this just blew our minds. We're like, whoa, we used to have to pay so much for a large, but now, now we can get any size drink from McDonald's, one dollar. And as everyone knows, if you want Coca-Cola, McDonald's has the best Coca-Cola in the world. I don't know what they do to it, but uh, they do something special and it's the best when it's fresh. So we went out to McDonald's and uh, we, we got our Coke and we're coming home and we are just on cloud nine. We're going to have pan fried rice when we get home. Our favorite meal is newlyweds. We're going to have a Coke that we can split that we got for a buck. It is great. And as I turn left off of Main Street going into the area where I live, in obedience to Newtonian laws, the cup of Coke tried to not turn left and won. And my wife, who's to the right of me, of course, is now occupying the space where the Coke would like to continue to occupy. And so, in slow motion, we watch, or she watches, I'm over here oblivious to everything as usual, but she watches this Coke break forth out of the cup holder, sploosh, out of its styrofoam container, and baptize her with its sugary, carbonated goodness. And as my wife is struggling to catch it and hold it and save some of the Coke still in it, she looks at me with sorrow in her face and goes, my good mood. (laughs) In an instant, we had gone from happy to crushed because of a spilt soda. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at the characteristics of the one who is truly content in Psalm 84. Yeah, Ian? No, no. I know. I'm just calling everyone the wrong name this morning, Lane. No, I really wasn't. The, the problem is this, this was a dashboard cup holder. It was an older car, and it wasn't designed for American-sized drinks, okay? Uh, it was designed for more appropriately less diabetic-inducing drinks. You talk? It, it is a, yes, it's a true story. All my stories are true stories, and if they're not, I promise I'll be honest about my deceitfulness. No, no more questions. No, we're going we're gonna to ask more about this later, guys. Well, we are talking about contentment because contentment can be very elusive. That means it's hard to catch and it's hard to maintain. I mean, if you think about it, when I think about my own children's lives, we can have the most like perfect day ever on paper, right? We wake up in the morning and the first thing we do, oh, we're having waffles for breakfast. And then we go out and we go to the zoo and it's an amazing day at the zoo. And somehow our kids are not tired. They're not cranky, they're not tired, and we go, you know what, let's go to the park and have fun. So we go to the park, and we run into our cousins. Our cousins are just at the park. This is amazing! And then we go, and we go, you know what, surprise, it's your birthday! And here's, here's a big birthday party for you, and here's cake, and here's ice cream, and everything is perfect. And then at the end of the day, they're thirsty, and say, Dad, can I have some water? I say, sure, son. And so I get him a cup of water, and I put it in a straw, and it's the wrong color straw. And everything is ruined. And I say, son, hey, how was your day? And he goes, it was horrible! This was the worst day of my life ever. And we, no comment. (laughs) And we do the same thing from time to time too, don't we? 
I mean, everything can be going our way, but we struggle with being joyful because we don't have that friendship we want to have. We don't have that romantic relationship we want to have. We don't have the wealth we want to have. We don't have the thing we want to have. We don't have the intelligence, the looks, the athletic abilities, whatever it is, because we don't have that one thing in our lives, we ignore all the other good things God has blessed us with, and our contentment just vanishes. So the question this morning is, how can we as Christians respond to the circumstances of life maintaining our contentment? How can we handle those, those little disappointments like the wrong color straw? And how can we handle those major life hurdles like sicknesses, deaths in the family, or other things of that nature? Those soul-crushing revelations and still praise God through it. Well, let's go ahead and read our passage this morning. This is again Psalm 84, and we're going to see what God has to say about this through the psalmist. Psalm 84 begins saying, For the choir director on the Giddeth, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house, and the swallows a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Salah. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Salah. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. Well, this morning, our title is going to be The Characteristics of the One Who is Content. And the theme we're going to see in these verses is that contentment is not found in ourselves. It's not found in others or it's not found in the passing pleasures of this world, but it is found in knowing and following after God our Savior. Contentment is not found in ourselves and others or the passing pleasures of this world, but contentment is found in knowing and following after God our Savior. Psalm 84 can be broken into three sections that describe a specific characteristic about the one who is content, along with a summary phrase that the one who is content in this specific manner will be blessed. It says, uh, blessed is the one who does this. Like verse 1 through 4, we'll see that the one who is content will long to be with God and his people. In verses 5 through 9, we'll see the one who is content will put their confidence in God. And in verses 10 to 12, we'll see that the one who is content will put their faith in God. And for each section, what I want us to do this morning is that we're going to look at the psalm itself and at the command of how we're to be content, and then we're going to look at the opposite of that. We're going to say, what is the opposite of what this person has, and did that bring them contentment? And we're going to look at examples in the Bible of whether or not 
having the opposite characteristic brings contentment or if it brings discontentment. But first, I want to give you a bit of background information about the psalm. Because not every psalm has this little header, but some of them do. And unlike the chapters and verses, these are part of the psalm itself. This is in the original text. This isn't something that we added later. This is part of God's inspired, revealed word to us. And Psalm 84 begins with a note that this is a psalm of the sons of Korah. And this was a group of psalmists that we know wrote 11 psalms for sure. Uh, it's possible that they wrote more and it just the psalm wasn't attributed to them for whatever reason. But we know for at the very least, 11 psalms throughout the book of Psalms were written by the sons of Korah. And each of the psalms they wrote focuses on a deep gratitude and humility to God and expresses a longing for God. Now I'm curious, outside of psalms, does anyone recognize the name Korah? We got one, a couple people. They're kind of infamous in one chapter in Numbers, this Korah guy. Yeah. That is exactly right. Oh, that's uh, almost 100% correct. We'll say 95%. Hold on. You, you guys can fill in blanks, I'm sure, but we'll get there. That's 95% correct. Uh, Korah, he's the grandson of Koath. And Koath was the son of Levi. So we got this. We got uh, Korah, his daddy, Koath, Levi. And Korah was also the first cousin of Moses and Aaron. Now, if any of you maybe not have convoluted family trees like me. You may not know what a first cousin is, but that just means that Aaron's dad and Korah's dad, brothers, okay? First cousins. And in Numbers 4, we see that God divides Levites into three groups based on which son of Levi they were. So Levi has three sons, uh, which I'm not going to name them all. The only one that's important this morning is the Kohathites, or the sons of Koath. And the Kohathites were given a responsibility of how they're supposed to take down the things in the tabernacle and transport it. So each of the three sons of Levi, they're given different responsibilities. Some carry the pillars, some carry the uh, curtains. And the sons of Koath were given the responsibility of actually carrying the things inside God's tabernacle itself, the sacred objects God set up for his worship. And they were given two unique restrictions that the other sons of Levi were not given. The first restriction is that they weren't allowed to use any animals to transport their stuff. Like everyone else, when they took down the tabernacle and moved, they were allowed to put it on carts or put it on the backs of a donkey or something, and it was allowed to be transported in this manner for them. The sons of Korah, or Korath, no, they had to carry everything themselves, including the extremely heavy Ark of the Covenant. Everywhere it go went, it had to be carried by human hands. The second restriction is that they were actually not allowed to directly touch the things they were transporting. Uh, Everyone else, they were allowed, okay, taking down the tents, taking down the rings, taking down the pillars, going to touch, touch myself, not the sons of Koath. They had to wait because God made one more distinction. He said, I'm going to take out of the sons of Koath, the descendants of Koath, I'm going to take Aaron's family. And Aaron's family is special. Not only does he get to transport the things in the tabernacle, he actually gets to directly touch and worship, or uh, touch these sacred objects throughout the worship. So he gets to directly touch the utensils. That's part of his, his daily chores. Uh, and he called this the, the, the lineage of Aaron the, the priests. And so uh, the, the priests were the ones who, being allowed to touch it, they had to take these sacred objects, they wrap them up, and then they hand them over to the other Kohathites. And they say, okay, now that we've wrapped it up, you're allowed to carry it. And as we come to Numbers 18, Korah, Aaron's cousin, uh, he gets fed up 
and stirs discontentment up in the hearts of the congregation of Israel. He gets 250 other men along with him. He gets some other leaders, and he comes before Aaron and listen to his complaint here in Numbers 16.3. He says to Aaron and Moses, he says, you have gone far enough for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? And Moses' response is he falls on his face before them. And he says, let God be the one to decide. So Moses exhibits his humility before them as they come and they demand, why don't they get to be priests also? Which is a little bit ironic because you might remember that when they came before Sinai, all the people together pleaded with Moses, please don't make us come up before God ourselves. You go up the mountain. You be our representative. Let us stand far away. And Moses, that wasn't the, the original intent. They were supposed to be able to come up. And they said, no, 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 no. We don't want it. They withdrew themselves. And now time has passed, and they said, we are unhappy with the position we have put ourselves in. We are discontent with the roles God has given us. And because of this, they lead a rebellion, and at the end of the chapter, we see, yes, God causes fire to come out and consume 250 men who are trying to offer sacrifice before him because they were not authorized to do so and because they rebelled against Moses. And we see that the other 5% of the story is that God caused the ground to open up underneath Korah's family and swallow them whole. Now, thankfully, you might be thinking, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute, wait. Korah's family was swallowed whole by the earth. How do we have the sons of Korah in Psalms? Well, I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> the reason we have it is when you come down to Numbers 26, Verse 11, we find out that Korah's sons were spared. And there's two reasons why this may have happened. It could be they were too young. And you might remember in the Levitical law, God said, you're not to hold the children accountable for the sins of the father. So it may have been that they, they just weren't old enough to be held accountable for following along with their father's rebellion. Or, and this is what I, I personally hope is true. I have no evidence for it, but I personally hope that they were old enough. And when they saw the rebellion of their dad, they said, this is wrong. And they stepped back. And they didn't follow their father into sin. That's my personal hope. I have no evidence for it, but it's just something I, I really hope because as we come to the Psalms, we see their extreme devotion to God. And I hope that these sons, when they put themselves aside from their father, they taught this to their children and their children, children. And it went throughout their family lineage as a deep contentment for God as they relayed this story, how they refused to participate in the rebellion. Either way, God spares them and we get to Solomon and something happens. What happens with Solomon in the tabernacle? What does he do? King Solomon, he does something with the tabernacle. Does it continue? Yeah? He builds a temple, yeah. So if the temple's built, does anyone need to move the tabernacle anymore? No. No, all of a sudden, there's uh, three sons of Levi who have no jobs. Like, the, the role God had given them as a son of Levi was to transport the things of the temple around. And remember, the Levites were given no inheritance in the land of Israel, so all of a sudden they had nothing. And God says, you know what? This is what's going to happen. Since you're not transporting things around anymore, you're to be the guards of my temple. We still have uh, Aaron's line. He's the priest, but he takes the people who transport stuff and he makes them guards over the temple. So there are three gates into the temple on each side, 12 gates in total. And each of these three different uh, 
lineages from Levi, they were to be guards over the temple and guard the gate. And I want you to think about this as we, we look at this passage, that here's a person who guards the gates into the temple. And listen what he says. In verse 1, he says, How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. I want you to think about the role of a guard at the gate. Day and night, what do they do? Someone who guards a building, a door guard. Does he go into the building? No, no, this is the guy who stands outside the building. Now, obviously, the ones who was, who was off work, he was allowed to go in and worship. They wouldn't have prevented him from going in. But his main job in the temple was to stand just outside the door and not enter in. And so all day long, he gets to look over his shoulder and see as people are going into the temple to worship God as part of his regular duties. And it would have been easy for the psalmist to be bitter about this and complain the same way his ancestor Korah did and say, it's not fair that I don't even get to transport stuff anymore. I'm stuck on door duty. Instead, we see that as the psalmist looks in, they express their love for the worship of God they see happening inside his temple. In fact, uh, the very next phrase they use is the phrase, how lovely it is to them. I want you to understand that when he says, how lovely, he's not being like, wow, you are so beautiful. No, he's saying this is, this is a beloved sight to him. This is something he cherishes. Uh, it, it is it is lovely to him in the sense that it is something he is deeply beloved to him. In verse 2, he goes on to say that he has such a deep love for, God, for where God is that his soul longed and even yearns to be there. Or as other translations put it, uh, it says it faints. He faints to be in his courts. And in Psalm 42, another psalm by the sons of Korah, they take this idea of, of fainting to be somewhere because of their extreme longing and they compare it to the same way that as a deer panteth for the water. Anyone remember, remember that phrase, as a deer panteth for the water, so my soul longs after you, O Lord? Psalm 42, same, same authors. They're recognizing that being in God's courts is as vital to their continued existence as water is to our everyday life. They have an all-consuming longing for God to be in his presence and join alongside others in the worship of their God the one true God who created all things. But the psalmist, he's not complaining. He's not, not upset that he's stuck outside looking in. At the end of verse 2, we see that he says that my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The psalmist has found perfect contentment in his role because he longs for a relationship with God. The kind of relationship with God that only comes from embracing the role that God has for you. And notice that the joy he has, it's not skin deep. This isn't just something he does on the outside. This is something he says, it's not just in my flesh, it's in my very heart. I sing for joy from the core of who I am, for what you have given for me to do, for who you are, and I want to be with you in that role. And the reason for this is he doesn't desire a fulfillment of his own self-centered desires, but he desires to be where God dwells as God wants him to. And we see this in verses 3 and 4. It says, The bird has also found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even on, or even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are, 
they are ever praising you. Now this sentence structure might come off a little awkward. Uh, there's other translations that I think might do it a, a little bit better justice uh, than the NASB does. Uh, but the idea going on here is that he's looking in and you know how whenever you walk up to say Kroger or Walmart, and you look up at the sign, now there's birds that sit there in the A, they make nests. Well, it's the same idea. He looks and he sees the temple and he sees that birds have built their nests in the eaves of the temple. Wherever a bird can find a spot, it has built a spot for its nest. Even on the altar itself, or some translations might say even near the altar. He's so, ex- he's so ecstatic that the bird's going to be just in close proximity to the altar that he sees that as an enviable position and something to be joyful over. The one who is content will long to be with God and with his people. And that's a positive aspect, that if you want to be content, you will long to be with God to be where he dwells, to joyfully praise him, and to be with other believers as they likewise praise God. So what do you think is the opposite of that? Of that? If the positive is to have a longing to praise God, to be with him, what is the opposite of longing to be with God? True, discontentment. What else? Think you don't need, need God. What's another way of saying that maybe? Hating God, true, yeah. So you guys are all right. And I admit it, whenever I was on your side, I always hated guessing. Because I'm like, just tell me, man. Like, <laughs> you, you got something in mind, just say it. So let me just say it. The opposite of longing to be with God, to be worshiping him, content in the role he has given you, is to be self-centered. Is to want what's best for you in your own mind and not as God would have you is to want to isolate yourself from his people, to isolate from your God and pursue your own self-interests. I want you to listen to how God describes the self-centered person in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Paul is warning Timothy, his protege, about dangers that's going to enter into a church, dangers that's going to affect a body of believers. And he warns him, he says, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self. Let me just pause here and say that what I'm about to read, 18 descriptions, all describing the person who's a lover of self, okay? So everything that I'm about to say, this is describing the man who is self-centered, who only cares about himself. He says, the lover of self will be lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Now this list is not supposed to mean that every self-centered person is going to exhibit all 18 of these characteristics at all times in their life. Uh, This list is merely saying that the person who is self-centered they are going to, as a pattern of their life, be displaying some combination of these attributes. And it's interesting to me, as I look through it, you can kind of see how some of them group together naturally. You can see this progression of sin throughout this list. Uh, For example, uh, boastful, arrogant revilers. 
Um, you can see how a boastful person, that is a, someone who brags about their accomplishments, will soon become arrogant. It's not just that, hey, you know, I did, I did a great job in the game. Like, that was awesome. Soon they're going to become arrogant. They're, they're going to go, I'm better than you. Like, it's not just that I'm doing a great job. It's that you're grossly incompetent compared to me. Your skills are pathetic compared to mine. I'm great. I'm amazing. And as they go from that arrogance, soon they will start to revile God. And revile means to speak arrogantly against uh, or to, uh, um, to speak of God in a vulgar or abusive manner. And I want you to think about that. The idea of someone who is boastful to becoming arrogant, to begin to speak to God in an, uh, an arrogant manner, reviling him, does that kind of make you think of anyone we've been talking about recently? Well, okay, true, true, not today, not today. Uh, that's a great, man, that would have been great. That would have been smart for me to tie it back earlier. No, uh, not this morning, earlier this week, let's say. Someone we've been talking about in youth group. Nebuchadnezzar, yes. I want you to, why don't you think about Nebuchadnezzar? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, in his speech that we saw on Wednesday night, first he boasted. He looks out, even after Daniel warned him, he says, is this not Babylon the Great? Boasting about it. Yeah. Then he becomes arrogant. It's not just Babylon the Great. It's Babylon the Great, which I made with my own hands and my own strength. And then he begins to revile God. He says, and I did all of it for my great glory. His boasting and arrogance caused him to reject the sound wisdom that he had received from Daniel, and he revealed the ignorance of his own mind as he reviled God and tried to ascribe glory to himself instead of God. Did it bring him contentment? This is kind of a, this is a softball in a hand pitch. Did, did it bring Nebuchadnezzar contentment? No, 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 he spent seven years as a cow. Uh, no, it did not bring him contentment at all. Now, even if God hadn't immediately disciplined Nebuchadnezzar, it still wouldn't have brought him contentment. This kind of self-centeredness only brings a further desire for more. It's never enough. I need more than I have right now. In Proverbs 30, it describes this kind of self-centered person as if they had teeth like swords and fangs like knives. And you just have this mental picture of the, this mouth that's like a, a meat grinder. And it describes them as constantly consuming and devouring the afflicted and needy in their pursuit of having more than they already have. And yet it says they are never satisfied. And describes them like the daughter of the leech who always cry out, more, more. Contentment cannot come from a self-centered exaltation of self or an endlessly acquiring more and more for your own pleasure. It comes from a longing to be with God and a deep desire to praise him in his house with his believers. Well, let's go ahead and look at the second section of this psalm. It's in verses 5 through 8. Excuse me, 5 through 9. And it addresses how the one who is content will put their confidence in God. Excuse me. It says, How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. 
The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the faith of, face of your anointed. The psalmist in this section is using the imagery of a person going on a pilgrimage to Israel, or to God's temple, excuse me. And this is something that was commanded of the Israelites to do three times every year in Deuteronomy 16.16. 16. And depending on where you lived in Israel, this could be a, a very long journey that you had to make three times every year. And just like how you and I, we can start to come to church out of a mechanical obedience, right? We go, hey, you know what? It's Sunday. <sighs> Got to go to church. Got to wake up early tomorrow morning. <sighs> Lose the first half of my Sunday. It's what I'm supposed to do. Let's go do it. The same way we can get in that mindset, uh, the Israelites likewise could get into the mindset of doing this journey out of mechanical outward obedience instead of a, a joyful heart. And we know they did this because in Isaiah 29, 13, God actually condemns Israel for their outward obedience. He says, you draw near to me with your words, things you say, you draw near to me with your lips, but your hearts you keep far from me. By contrast, the psalmist focuses on someone who honestly and eagerly looks forward to the pilgrimage to the point that it's like the road to Zion, it's always in their heart. And I think we, we can understand that, right? Like if we have a vacation coming up, man, that vacation, it's in our heart. Like we're excited for it. We know, we're, we know we're going somewhere. And just as that day gets closer and closer, our mind is already on the road that's going to take us there or the road that's going to take us to the plane that's going to take us there or whatever way you're going there. It's in your heart and it's in your mind. In the same way, the, the psalmist describes someone who is so looking forward to going to Jerusalem that it's just always there in his heart. For him, the road isn't long. It's not hot. It is beautiful because it leads to the place where God is. And in verse 6, the psalmist takes or talks about coming to the valley of Baca and making it spring. And while we don't know where Baca was actually located, I mean, we do see it written about outside the Bible as well. We know it was a literal place and not just a figurative one that he's describing. Uh, we know it's literal and we know that it was dry and it was arid. Uh, it was hot. The psalmist describes the one who is content as being so joyful to be journeying to where God is. And it's, as if, if, it's as if to him this harsh area was actually a beautiful spring resort. And I love this verse because the psalmist is using a very clever play on words here. Like, does anyone like a good pun? No, no one likes a good pun. We groan at it, but we still like it. <laughs> They're great. I love a good pun. And this is a, a play on words because the word baka, he's talking about the Valley of Baca, it, it literally means like a, basal, a basalm tree. So there's this valley. It has a bunch of these trees in it. And he's talking about, oh, it's the valley where the basalm trees are. But at the same time, Baca means weeping. And so he's creating this mental image of uh, you're going through a valley of great weeping, of tears, of sorrow. This is a difficult trial in someone's life. So in the same way that a joyful person would come to this literal valley of Baca where it was hot and it was arid and being with him and his joy you can see his joy as he goes to Jerusalem to worship God, and it made the whole place seem better. In the same way, when someone is going through a trial in their life, and their contentment is found in Christ alone, in God alone, 
as they're going through this valley of tears, it is as if it was a joyful experience. The one who has placed their confidence in God will go from strength to strength, it goes on to say. That is, when they are weak, because of their contentment, or because their contentment is in, let me try that sentence again, because their contentment is in God, they find new strength to carry them along. Now, let me make an aside here. We're talking about this person, he's going through a hard time, his contentment is in God, and he's going from strength to strength. Does this mean as long as you find contentment in God, if you were going through a hard time, you'd always be able to be at church? You would always be able to do whatever ministry you're supposed to do. You'd always be able to show up at work no matter what was going on in your life. Is that what the Bible is trying to say here? No, it's not. Look, guys, my dad had cancer. Anyone who knew my dad would be able to tell you that being around him was like this guy. He was in the valley of tears. But when he was with you, you knew that he had come to minister to you. And it was like just being in this joyful spring valley. But guys, the first time I ever taught in church was because my dad was too weak to go stand in front of his adult Sunday school class. And Saturday night, he says, Matt, I can't do it. I need you to do it for me. And I said, I'm sorry, what? He said, you'll do great, don't worry. And you know what? There is no audio record of this, so I can tell you with great confidence that I did perfect, uh, that there was no stuttering, and I certainly didn't spend the whole time looking down at my notes. Uh, But regardless of how well young Matthew fared, the point is that my dad, who found contentment from his confidence in Christ, that God would sustain him by his strength and not his own strength, still faced deeply hard days where he couldn't stand up. He couldn't even sit up from the pain. Days where he was too exhausted to sink think straight. Days where the medication made him like a man I didn't even know. But through it all, the contentment that radiated out from him as he ministered to others was like a spring in an arid and desert land. The one who has confidence in the Lord will be content because he knows at the end of the journey, no matter what he goes through, no matter how tearful the valley is, God is at the end of that journey. What about the one whose confidence is not in God, but in the work of their own hands? I find the perfect example for this is in Jeremiah 42 and 43. Uh, And I really love this passage because it so accurately displays my own heart. And I think it might accurately display a lot of people's heart in here. Uh, As we come to Jeremiah 42... At this point in time, Babylon has come and they've taken most of Israel into captivity and they put up a puppet king and they said, obey this man. And so this goes on for a little bit of time. You got a little bit of people left in Israel. We call them the remnant. And someone says, I'm done. And they go up and they kill the puppet king. And everyone goes, oh boy, mistakes have been made. Uh, We are going to be absolutely wiped out by the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to come when he finds out about this, and he's going to kill everyone that's here. We need to get to Egypt where it's safe. And so they start to travel that way, and they go, you know what? Let's talk to Jeremiah real quick. He's a prophet. So they go to Jeremiah, and they say say this in uh, Jeremiah 42, verse 6, and I love this so much. They say, we want your wisdom, and you know what? 
whether it is pleasant or unpleasant, we will listen to the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you, so that it may go well with us when we listen to the voice of the Lord our God. Guys, oftentimes that's my heart, okay? I say, God, whatever it is, you let me know, pleasant or unpleasant, I'm going to do it. But the reason I love this so much is because what's about to happen? So Jeremiah goes and he prays to God, and 10 days later he comes and he says, okay, everyone, thank you for gathering. Here's the message from the Lord. Don't go to Egypt. If you go to Egypt, you're going to face famine. You're going to face pestilence. You're going to face persecution. If you stay right here, everything's going to be fine. And in Jeremiah 43, 1 and 2, listen to how they respond. It says, But as soon as Jeremiah, whom the Lord their God had sent, had finished telling all the people all the words of the Lord their God, that is, all these words, Azariah, the son of Hoshathai, sure, and Johanna, the son of Kareth, and all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, you're telling a lie. The Lord our God has not sent you to say you are not to enter Egypt to reside there. So they had come to Jeremiah only to hear what they wanted to hear. And the second he didn't do it, he, didn't, he barely got to the period at the end of his sentence before they, said, before they said, you're lying. Like they didn't even think about it. There was no hesitation. He says, don't go. No, you're lying. We're going to go anyway. And not only did they go, they forced Jeremiah to come with them. Like, they took him hostage. I mean, doesn't that describe my own heart sometimes? Maybe that describes yours too. I come to the Lord. I say, whatever it is, I'm going to do it. I change my mind. I've made mistakes. I don't want to do this. That's what these people did. They had no confidence in God. When disaster came to them, they rejected the message from God and put their confidence in mere men. Now, on a human level, they were making good choices. If I only look at things at a human level, they said, we are, the puppet king has been killed. Here comes Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to go where it's safe. At a human level, that was intelligent. The problem is we, don't, we aren't to operate at a human level. When we come before God and we say, this is what man's intelligence tells me I should be doing. Am I doing the right thing? We are to obey God every time. Our confidence is not to be placed in men but in God alone. And these people had no confidence at all in God. Well, do you think they found contentment in Egypt? No. No, they found no contentment in in Egypt. In Jeremiah 46, God reveals to them that had they stayed in Israel, Nebuchadnezzar would have passed them right by because he didn't care about them. What, Nebuch- what God had put in Nebuchadnezzar's heart was to go to Egypt and punish the Egyptians, the king of Egypt, for their worshiping many false gods. By fleeing to Egypt, they ran into the arms of the very danger they had tried to avoid by going there in the first place. We cannot find contentment by placing our confidence in people or things. Contentment can only be found when our confidence is placed in God the one who moves peoples and things as he desires to accomplish his will. And this brings us to our final section in verses 10 and 12, excuse me, 10 through 12, which addresses how the one who is content will put their faith in God. It says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. 
Now, this section is dealing with the foolishness of believing that sin will bring you contentment. And he does this by comparing it to the unparalleled true contentment that comes from a life lived in righteousness. And the psalmist begins this section by declaring two fundamental truths. The first, that if he had two options, on the one hand, he could spend a single day living in God's courts. And on the other hand, he could spend a thousand days living anywhere else. He says, it's a no-brainer. I'm going to choose God's court every time. And this isn't supposed to say a little literal limit, right? It's not one day versus a thousand. Yes, God's court, thank you. One day versus a thousand and one. <laughs> well, you know, maybe it's a harder choice. Maybe, maybe I do want to be outside. He said, no, 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 no. He's making this, this absurdly huge difference of, of quantities. He says, it doesn't matter how many days you give me outside of God's court. It can't compare to the smallest amount of time in God's court. And then he further emphasizes this with his second truth, that it would be better to only be allowed to come up to the threshold of God's house than to live in great tents of wickedness. And this is pulling back to the, to the idea that he has, right? He's a, he's a door guard. And he's saying, look, I understand how you might say, if I got to be physically in God's presence, okay, fine. It's worth denying the pleasures of this world so I could be in God's presence for a moment. But he's saying, guys, you don't understand. It is better to live a life of perfect righteousness, denying all the pleasures of the world, even if all you get to do is walk up to the doorway of God's house and not enter in. That is a far better place to be than to live in, no matter how great a tent it is, the tent of wickedness. The whole world may think that obedience to God means having to give up everything that makes you happy and live the boring life of a nun. But the psalmist is saying, you are thinking about this all backwards. You are giving up that which cannot satisfy in the world to find perfect contentment in God. And the reason the psalmist can make such a bold claim that he's been making is because he fully trusts in the nature of God. In verse 11, he states that the reason it would be better to live merely at the threshold of God and never be allowed to enter into his home is because God has told us that he withholds not a single good thing from us. And this is so very important. If you let your mind wander, come back for just a minute, guys. This is the most important part. God has not promised you endless money. He's not promised you perfect relationships. He's not promised you the car you want, the house you want. He hasn't promised you perfect health. But he has promised you this. He will not withhold a single thing from you that is truly good for you. And does this mean nothing bad's going to happen to you? No. People are sinners, everyone. You're a sinner. You're going to choose to reject God at times, okay? And there's going to be consequences for that. Bad things are going to come. But the Bible promises you that God only disciplines those whom he loves, and he does it for our betterment, all right? So let's understand that first of all. Bad things are going to happen to us. God's going to be the one making it happen. But he has it there to discipline you so that you can turn to him. The second truth is other people are sinners and other people are going to sin against you because they choose to reject God 
and choose to pursue self. And this can be just minor slights, maybe a little gossiping behind your back. It can result in you having to leave your home church for years until people move forward. It can result in people mugging you and trying to rob you and killing you. Bad things are going to happen. What God has promised is that he will withhold nothing good from you that will further refine you to make you more like him. This is the promise of God. I have no doubt that there are people here today in this room that think that the sin they have that no one else knows about, your friends don't know about, your siblings don't know about, your parents don't know about, makes them content. They think that secret sin, when they get to do it, brings them joy and happiness. But let me ask you this in no uncertain terms. Is it really bringing you happiness? Is it really happiness to indulge in that sin and spend the whole time going, oh man, what if I get caught? To live in abject fear of that sin being revealed? No, that is not happiness. That is living under a cruel and brutal slave master. Do you really think that by living, by putting yourself first above everyone else, you're fulfilling something in your life? No. No, all that happens is you end up being bitter that other people aren't treating you as important as you're treating yourself. When Satan came to Eve in the Garden of Eden, he attacked her by getting her to doubt that God really had her best interests in mind. He said, it's not that God doesn't want you to eat this because he knows what's best for you. God is withholding this from you because he does not love you. He knows that if you had this, you would be like him. And he wants to keep you under his thumb. He wants to deny you good things in your life. That's how Satan attacked Eve. And Eve fell for it. And for the rest of her life, 700, 800, 900 years, whatever it was, Eve never got to experience the contentment she had in the garden being obedient to God. It wasn't until she died that she was able to restore that perfect relationship with God. I say she was able, that God restored, God was the one who did it. God restored the relationship he had with Eve. Like he did with Eve, Satan is out to rob you of the contentment God desires for you to have in this life. Satan wants you to believe that God does not love you, that God does not want to give you good things for your spiritual embitterment. He wants you to reject the contentment that God would give you so you can pursue after the things of this world that cannot bring satisfaction. To put your faith in people who will absolutely fail you and to trust in the fleeting, hollow joys of this life. If you are a Christian and you are living with sin in your life, a sin that you think no one knows, I hope you will confess that sin. Because let me tell you this, it is better to confess a sin and face the punishment for that sin and have it out of your life That brings you far, far more joy than holding on to that sin and letting it fester in your hearts. If you are not a Christian, then I pray that you will think hard about the things you are currently trying to find contentment in and ask yourself, am I really happy? Is any of this really bringing me contentment?
Though the pursuits of sin can bring pleasure and even momentary joy, they cannot satisfy. You will always be going after the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, trying to get that hit one more time of that momentary fleeting pleasure. And after you think about this and realize, you know what? I don't want to admit it, but he's right. The sin I keep pursuing, it's not bringing me lasting happiness. It's bringing me a momentary joy and then dread of it being found out. It's bringing me emptiness at the end of the day as I lie in my bed. I'm just filled with no joy at all. I pray that as you think about that, you would turn to God. Come talk to us leaders. Talk to your parents. Talk to a believing friend. And find true contentment. God has promised to withhold nothing good from you when you come to him. And the Bible tells us that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I heard a song this week that really summarizes how we should be filled with our contentment. And I can't remember the name of it for the life of me. I tried to look it up. I'm clearly remembering the name completely wrong. But there was one line in it that was so true, and I wanted to leave you with it this morning. It said, if I have nothing but I have Jesus, then I have everything. May that be our mindsets throughout this week, that our contentment is found solely in God and our desire to be with him and our trust in his promises. Let's pray, guys. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are God and we are not. Lord, we thank you that in you alone is found true contentment. Lord, there are people who fill their lives from front to back with the pursuit of contentment and things that cannot satisfy. There are endless books written to help people find happiness that cannot bring them happiness. Oh God, we thank you that you have promised us true contentment when we lay aside our own wants and our own desires. Instead, we long after what you want and desire for our life. When we match our will to your will, Lord, we find perfect peace and rest. I pray that that would be the mindset of our hearts today throughout our lives, that we would seek contentment not in the things of this world, not in people who will fill us, not in the passing pleasures of sin, but in you and you alone. Father, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.